In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about life's dark transitions. Time sure flies, doesn't it? Tempus fugit, as they say. Maybe it's just the state of life in these COVID days, but it seems weeks fly by like days. For instance, we started our YouTube channel a mere three months ago. And if you haven't checked it out yet, you'll find 14 of our live stream performances, along with the first episode of our Inside the No Sleep Studio series. There's lots of content there, and it's growing. Head over to youtube.com slash the no sleep podcast official for all the sleepless sights and sounds. And while you can't see us on this episode, we trust you'll enjoy the sounds we have in store for you. Now... Close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we join a woman whose husband is dying following an accident. Naturally, she'd do anything to save his life, even if that means trawling the deep web and looking for somewhat unusual solutions. And in this tale, shared with us by author Blair Daniels, An unusual solution is exactly what she finds. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Penny Scott Andrews, Dan Zapula, Jessica McAvoy, and Mick Wingert. So let's go on a strange quest to save a loved one. After all, there's no such thing as going too far when it comes to saving the one you love. You'd even go so far as Costco's Secret Basement. My husband is dying. Despite his good prognosis after the accident, he gets weaker every day. After he couldn't even say my name, I got desperate. I posted details of his condition on every forum I could find. Medical, accident survivors. I even posted it on a sketchy, deep web forum called Help Yourself. That's where I got the PM from... Chris, I can help you. I'll send instructions tomorrow morning. See, the next morning, I didn't get another PM. I got a letter. A real paper envelope 
tucked into my empty mailbox. After I got over the initial terror, he somehow knows where I live. I greedily opened it and read the note inside. Dear Blair, here are the instructions. Be sure to follow them exactly, or they might find you. Then we'll have a real problem on our hands. C. 1. Drive to the Costco in Bloomberg. Bring a photograph of your husband and something that is likely to have his DNA on it, like a toothbrush. 2. Go to the refrigerated produce room in the back. You will see a red-haired woman standing there, pretending to sort through the lettuce. She will be wearing a red vest and a Costco badge. But don't be fooled. She is not an employee. 3. Go up to her and ask, Do you have organic blueberries? My son's allergic to the other kind. 4. As long as the produce section is empty, she will smile and lead you over to the blueberries. As she picks up a box and hands it to you, she will purposefully drop it. Oh no! She'll pretend it's an accident. Play along. 5. Such a mess. Blueberries all over the floor. She'll say, I'll stand out there and make sure no one comes in while we wait for the janitor. 6. No janitor is coming, of course. 7. She will stand guard outside the produce room. Go to the right wall where the crate of mushrooms is. Push it back towards the wall. It will roll into a small alcove. Beneath it, you will see a rectangular hole cut into the floor and a ladder leading down. Seven, climb down it. My eyes flickered to the bottom where he had scrawled in red marker. Warning, read before proceeding. One, don't just make a beeline for the produce section. They'll know what you're doing. Get a cart. Fill it with some junk. You should blend in with the other shoppers as much as possible. For that same reason, don't wear bright colors or heavy makeup. Two, if a short woman with an infant strapped to her chest asks you for help, kindly refuse. She is one of them. If you look closely, you will notice that the infant pressed face first into her chest is a doll. Three, Don't talk to the man at the front of the store advertising flooring. He's not one of them. He's just rude. Four, don't buy any food from the cafe. I folded up the paper and jammed it into my pocket. Then I rushed into the house, grabbed the items he requested, and jumped in the car. With a squeal of tires, I was on my way. It had been a decade since I last set foot in a Costco. Everything looked different. Bigger. Emptier. The shelves stretched up to the ceiling far above. A seasonal section of glittering Christmas trees and dancing Santas sat far below. I rolled the cart into one of the first aisles. Napkins and disposable dining ware stared back at me. I grabbed a huge stack of paper plates and dropped it into my cart. When I got to the end of the aisle, I turned left. Excuse me? I turned around. A pretty blonde woman stood behind me. She flashed me a sweet smile. Yeah? I don't want to bother you, but can you help me get that? 
she pointed to a jug of maple syrup on a high shelf. I can't reach it, and you're so tall. I stared at her, my heart beginning to pound. My eyes flicked down. A motionless infant was strapped to her chest. No, I'm sorry, I'm in a hurry. But... I quickened my pace. The cart rolled across the floor with newfound speed. I didn't slow until I'd rounded the corner. Then I grabbed a few more decoy items. Some corn muffins from the bakery, a bag of clementines, and arrived at the produce room. When I entered, there she was. The red-haired woman sorting through the lettuce. I cleared my throat. Uh, do you have organic blueberries? My son's... Uh, he, he can't eat them. I mean, he's allergic to the other kind. Fuck. She gave me a smile and walked over to the blueberries. They're right over here. She picked up one of the boxes. I watched her walk out. When she was firmly stationed at the entrance... I ran over to the crate of mushrooms. I gave it a push. It rolled easily under my hands. With a final glance at the red-haired woman, I descended into the pit. The metal rungs were cold under my hands. They felt rough, as if covered in rust. The square of light above me shrunk until it was little more than a twinkling star in a black sky. My feet hit the hard floor. I pulled out my phone and turned on the flashlight. Before me was a tunnel, roughly hewn out of stone, like some strange hybrid between a basement and a cave. I walked forward. The floor was uneven, and I had to concentrate to keep my footing. The damp walls glistened in the white light. After a few minutes, I found a wooden door set into the stone. I pulled it open. Inside was a dark, cavernous room. The smooth walls and rectangular shape looked like a traditional basement, but it had a rotten, swamp-like stench to it. In the center was a table. One leg was bent and broken. There was a sheet of paper in the middle. Leave the items here. We'll take care of the rest. See. I pulled the toothbrush and photo out of my pocket. I placed them on the table. I looked around the room, but as far as I could tell, it was empty. The closest thing to a person was a heap of clothes in the back corner. My heart filled with doubt, but I tried to focus on Dan and the happy life we deserved as I exited the basement. Dan came home from the hospital two days later. That first night home, we sat on the couch in front of the TV eating ice cream like nothing had happened. I guess I'm living on borrowed time. Better make a count. By eating tons of ice cream? By leading a good life. Oh. He smiled at me. I reached out for his hand, squeezed it, and smiled back. But our smiles faded when the news came on. The newscaster was standing outside of the Costco, Dozens of police cars were parked around it, their red and blue lights cutting through the night. Thanks, Jim. Tonight, police found evidence of violent cult activity at the Bloomberg Costco. I jabbed nervously at my ice cream. Human remains belonging to dozens of individuals were found in the basement. 
They ranged from a few days to a few years old. Police believe some match the missing locals, but we're waiting on forensics to answer. The most recent remains, however, have been identified as belonging to 24-year-old Carly Bessinger. A photograph flashed up on the screen. Blonde hair, blue eyes, a warm smile. It was her, the blonde woman who asked me to reach something on the shelf. Security footage shows her walking around the store two days ago, alive and well, until she entered the produce section. The reporter's voice faded. I wasn't listening anymore. Chris lied. There was no them. No woman with a doll strapped to her chest waiting to pounce on me. No evil entity watching, thinking, plotting. He just didn't want me talking to a witness, a victim, a sacrifice. I looked over at Dan. He watched, oblivious. A generic look of concern spread over his features. I looked down at the floor, unable to watch anymore. Dan's not on borrowed time. He's on stolen time. When you've suffered heartbreak and divorce, going on a lengthy hiking trip can be just the ticket. Living under the stars, no screens in your face, uh, bliss, well, for a while anyway. But after a while, you're gonna want a shower. And in this tale, shared with us by author Carolyn A. Drake, that's exactly what our camper finds herself craving. So imagine her disappointment when she rolls up to the campsite to find the shower closed off. Performing this tale is Aaron Lillis. So when you've been craving that hot water to ease your tired limbs, you're not going to let anything get in your way. Not even a sign which reads, Closed for Cleaning. All I wanted was a shower. I'd been hiking the Pacific Crest Trail for three weeks. I was never a hiker until I married Jarrett, and his hobbies became our hobbies. Then I caught him one day, getting extra physical with his tennis instructor. Seven excruciating months later, my ring finger was naked and my heart was exhausted. Instead of agonizing over Jared's Instagram, on which he was already posting photos of him taking his new partner to places he'd vowed to take me, I chose to disconnect from civilization. I gathered my share of our savings, gave work my two weeks notice, and purchased the best hiking boots REI had in stock. I began the Pacific Crest Trail from the California-Oregon Trailhead in late August. The hike spans 2,650 miles from Mexico to Canada, but I only plan to complete the Oregon portion of the trail, the total of which runs just over 400 miles. 
I was three weeks into the trip when I realized I was in over my head. I'm a Portland native and considered myself immune to Pacific Northwest weather, but spending five consecutive days steeped in freezing puddles with only a tiny pop-up tent for shelter was a rainy hell. So when I finally hit the Crater Lake portion of the trail, I was ready to be warm. Crater Lake was one of the few stops on the trail that boasted washing machines, showers, and even spotty Wi-Fi. I was drenched when I arrived at the Mazama Village Registration Office Camp Store and booked a campsite for a single evening. It was mid-September, and the weather had been nothing but foggy rain for weeks, so there were plenty of tent-only sites. The man behind the counter was tactful, but I still caught him wrinkling his nose as he agreed to keep my pop-up tent and fanny pack behind the cash register until I was done showering. I couldn't blame him. I'd spent the last eight days in the wilderness, most days wearing the same clothes I fell asleep in until they were soaked with sweat from the day's hike. The fading gray daylight illuminated the parking lot as I left the registration office. The lot was empty. Everyone who had braved the chilling rain to camp in the national park was holed up in their tents playing cards and drinking beer until sundown. I knew that I should be in the same boat, but I'd gotten a late start on my hike that morning, and as much as I wanted to be snuggled up in the warmth of my sleeping bag, I craved the blissful release of a steamy shower. The registration office graced a large parking lot, surrounded by expansive forest. The laundry room and bathrooms with showers were in the same building, but each had separate entrances from the parking lot. I hastily shouldered open the door to the public laundry room, which was nothing more than two washing machines and two dryers. I fed the washing machine three quarters and my muddy clothes before exiting back into the parking lot and making my way to the bathroom entrance. With my backpack bursting with cleanish sweatpants for sleeping and toiletries, I approached the women's bathroom door. My heart sank, however, as I caught sight of the wrinkled paper taped to the outside. Closed for cleaning. Ugh. I stomped my boot against the taupe-colored tile like a child. I wanted a shower. I needed a shower. A hot, steamy, soapy, relaxing shower. I didn't have time to wait the 15 to 30 minutes it would take for that sign to come down. If I waited too long, I'd never get to the campsite before dark, and assembling my one-person tent in the utter obscurity of the woods and in the rain to boot would be a miserable experience. I glanced around the hall leading from the parking lot door to the bathroom. No one. I tentatively nudged the bathroom door open and peeked inside. The line of sinks and stalls were vacant. I crept a little further inside. Hello? No one replied. The bathroom was empty. Emboldened, I entered the bathroom and let the door close behind me. I checked the open stall doors to ensure I was totally alone before hurrying past the toilets and sinks towards the second door, the one labeled showers. I pushed open the door and again looked around, but mercifully saw no one. I was ecstatic. The cleaning woman had probably tacked the sign up before beginning the job and was on her way back with her supply cart. Until then, though, I was free to indulge in a sinfully hot shower. Six showers lined the wall to my left, all sequestered behind singular heavy plastic curtains that fell down to my ankles. I stepped into one of the shower areas and yanked the curtain shut behind me. 
there was a small dressing area beside the actual shower, although the entire space no larger than seven feet by three feet. There were no windows, and the only entrance was the curtained archway. It was little more than a cramped nook of ceramic tiles and a shower head, but damn it, it would do. I set my backpack down on a small wooden bench beside the shower and shed my clothes faster than my teenage self did on prom night. Shivering in the damp cold of the tiled room, I slid my dollar bin flip-flops on and hurried 75 cents into the dispenser. Water began pouring from the camp shower with the force of 10 shower heads. I threw myself beneath the stream. My three quarters would only buy four minutes of this sweltering heaven. I planned to relish every second of it. I tilted my chin back and let the scalding water run down my neck. Ah, yes. I lathered up my hands and dug my fingers into my hair, massaging the built-up grime away. Slippery water slid down my curves and slithered between my toes. I grinned as the water splashed over my chapped lips and washed off the muck of the last week. This was paradise. I opened my eyes and glanced at the closed plastic curtain separating my naked body from other campers. It was shut, and all I saw beneath it was vacant tiled floor. Hello? I waited for a few seconds, expecting someone to tell me to get out so they could clean but no one spoke. I turned my head towards the curtain, letting the water hit the side of my face. Hello? Still, nothing. But as I observed the shower curtain, wondering if I should poke my head beyond it to see if there was anyone else in the room, the lights flickered. The lights were old, the fluorescent kind that probably were installed back in the 90s and hadn't been replaced since. I turned my gaze up to the light above my head, squinting against the splattering water splashing off my skin. The bulb continued flickering, but did not go out. Something to my left shifted beyond the curtain. I turned my head to look, and in the heat of the steaming shower, I froze. Beneath the ankle-length hem of the shower curtain were two bare, muddy feet. The shower curtain remained closed, but I stared at those feet, all too aware that the only thing separating me from another human was a flimsy plastic curtain. I let the water smack into my body without moving. It felt like moving would somehow break the spell this moment was under, and something would happen. I wasn't sure if the thing that would happen would be benign or malignant. As long as I didn't move, though, it might all be okay. My four minutes were up. Suddenly, with the water shut off, the only sound in the vast shower room was my panting breath. I clamped a hand over my mouth, trying to stem the sound of my heavy breathing. My eyes never left those muddy feet. They looked like they belonged to a woman, which should have given me some relief, but why would anyone be barefoot in a public restroom at a national park campsite? Not only that, but... Why, why would anyone just be standing there outside my shower curtain? Her toes were facing towards me, towards the curtain, which meant that whoever the feet belonged to, the person was just standing there, 
her face practically pressed against the other side of the curtain. Why wasn't she saying anything? Why wasn't she moving? There were plenty of other showers. There were five vacant ones when I got in, and I heard no one else enter the room in the five minutes I'd been there. So what the actual fuck was she doing? My flight-or-fight instincts were firing. I needed to either fight this chick or get the hell away from her. But in order to get away, I'd have to get past her. I was stuffed into a little ceramic cubby of a shower, after all, with no exit other than the entrance that was obscured by the curtain and blocked by my unknown intruder. My hands shook as I swiped excess water from my body. Too late, I realized that I was still covered in soap that hadn't been washed off during my shower. I didn't care. I would take a night of sleeping in my tent in the rain with soap suds clinging to my skin as long as it meant getting out of this horrific situation. I considered screaming for help, but who would hear me? The registration guy was on the other side of the laundry room, which was banging away with a load of my clothes, and the rain pounding on the roof of the camp store would certainly drown out my cries. It was the brink of dusk, and no other campers were nearby. Besides, the closed-for-cleaning sign would surely send any stray female hikers looking to relieve themselves across the parking lot to the restaurant bathroom. There was no one coming to help me. Can I help you? I immediately hated myself for not charging through the curtain to confront this person and for sounding so pathetic and helpless. Me, a grown woman, cowering behind a flimsy curtain, naked, vulnerable, covered in soap. Again, however, no one replied. There was, however, the ghastly sound of a feminine growl. snarl was animalistic, even though it almost certainly came from the woman's throat. It reverberated against the tiled walls of the shower room. No words were spoken. Goose flesh erupted along my skin, and had I possessed the capability to nope the fuck out of there, I'd have been gone in that instant. But I did not have that chance. The intruder, who stood silently outside the shower curtain, blocked my only exit and I didn't possess the courage to force my way past her. Shivering minutes went by as I stared at those white, muddy feet. The longer I stared at them, the more I was struck by their paleness. They were almost blue. Even though they were humanoid, I was struck by the sudden realization that this being was no woman. It was no human being. This was some thing. My breathing quickened. My pulse hammered beneath my skin. I could hear my blood rushing in my ears. As though the thing on the other side of the curtain could sense my anxiety, I heard it move. Its bones clicked as limbs shifted its weight from one foot to the other, and then back, swaying left and right, just feet away from me. Its visage blocked merely by a curtain of beige plastic. My heart thumped a frenzied rhythm in my chest. Whatever horrible threat this thing posed to me, it was about to follow through. I glanced around my small shower stall wildly for a weapon to defend myself. I had nothing. I had left my hunting knife inside my fanny pack, which was tucked safely behind the camp registration desk. 
There was nothing I could do. I had no options of escape, no options of defense, and no options of pacifying whatever this thing was. I was cornered. I was trapped. Then, in what was both a blight and a blessing, the lights went out. To this day, I don't know if the thing beyond the curtain was the cause of the lights going out or if that was a freak coincidence by the storm. Whatever the case, being plunged into complete darkness was apparently the spark my survival instincts required to be sped into action. I plunged forward. I lifted my arms before me and shoved the curtain aside. I felt icy, rigid hands slap and grab at my naked skin, but thanks to the unrinsed soap coating my entire body, the thing couldn't get a firm hold. I twisted and shrieked like a banshee. The hands slipped away. The naked soles of my feet slapped along the wet tile in the darkness towards where I remembered the door being. My outstretched hands collided with the shut door, and my face crunched against the metal surface. I fumbled, feeling a presence behind me bearing down as I scrambled and screamed. At last, my fingers wrapped around the door handle. I yanked. The door swung open, and with soapy water lubricating my sprint, I scrambled into the blackened bathroom and then out into the hallway of the shadowy registration building. A white, full moon was already lighting the parking lot as I shoved my way out of the building and clattered into the parking lot. I was screaming my head off as I surfaced into the cold night air. I remember this next part so clearly that I still dream of it in vivid detail. There was a camper van parked in the dead center of the lot as though placed there by divine hand of fate. A man in a black raincoat and a woman with long blonde hair faced the van, their backs to me, a cell phone propped up on the hood as they posed with peace signs before the National Park Camping Registration Office. In my terror, I ran towards them. They were the only humans I saw in my immediate vicinity. I was screaming and blubbering for them to call the cops because there was something in the bathrooms. I remember clinging to the woman's jean jacket and staring wildly at the closed bathroom door. I recall the man throwing his raincoat around my naked body and sprinting into the registration office the second the building regained power so he could use their landline as neither their cell phones had service in the park. I remember the girl gingerly placing me into the camper van driver's seat to get me out of the rain and cooing to get me to drink some water. She held my hands and said it would be okay as sirens screamed towards us. I clutched her until police pried me away for questioning. I was brought into the closed camp restaurant as I refused to set foot in the registration building again. Someone handed me a towel, which I absently used to wipe the lingering soap from my body. I was given a pair of sweats from the campervan girl's wardrobe. A steaming cup of cocoa was pushed into my jittering hands. I sputtered my story over and over again until it was past midnight. By then, the campervan couple was gone, and every inch of the bathroom had been searched. Police determined that the bathrooms had been closed for cleaning some hours ago, but that the cleaning woman failed to remove the sign. No one knew who the woman with the muddy feet was, and no one found anyone hiding in or around the bathrooms. Words like dehydration, mental fatigue, and hallucination were thrown around until I began to believe them myself. I was taken to the lodge at the rim of the crater 
kind police officer sweet-talked the receptionist into giving me a room at the late hour. And then he saw me to the door and waited until it was locked behind me before he left. I did not sleep that night. At dawn, I called a cab and paid a stupid amount of money to be taken to the closest rental car agency. I did not collect my hiking clothes from the laundry room at Crater Lake National Park. I did not complete my hiking trip. I did not take a shower for a very long time. I returned to Portland and found myself an apartment in the busiest, most well-lit part of the city. I told my friends I got tired of the rain and laughed off jokes about my ineptitude to survive in the wilderness. I took a new job. I took a new lover. I forced myself to heal. I began to forget. Then, I got an email. It was entitled, Thought You Should See This. I almost didn't open it. I knew I shouldn't. I did anyway. The email contained a short message from the campervan girl. She told me that she had wrestled over whether or not to send the attached document to me because she didn't think it would help me to see it. But, she continued, she knew what it was like to experience something horrible that no one believed, and she didn't want me to live with the doubt. Attached to the email was a single photograph. It was a picture of the campervan girl and the man she had been with on the evening of the incident. She and the man were facing the camera, away from the registration office. They hugged each other and smiled in the darkening sky. The horizon behind them lit only with the remnants of sunset. And beyond them, I saw myself. I was a slightly blurry form 15 feet behind them, sprinting towards their oblivious smiles with a look of pure terror on my face. I was naked and barefoot. Upon seeing this, I cringed, but I was confused. I knew that all of this had happened. It was a terrible memory, yes, but it wasn't something I didn't know about already. I was about to close the photo when I saw it. A shadow. More than a shadow, though, a, a body. I increased the resolution of the photo on my laptop screen and zoomed in. When the image loaded, I felt my blood run cold. There was an outline of an obscured being. Clearly an adult person, but somehow also not a person. Standing in the still darkened registration building some ten feet behind me. It didn't seem willing to move beyond the bathroom door as it stood with its hands braced against the doorframe. The stance in which it watched me was menacing. Electric bolts shot down my spine just seeing the threatening still frame of the creature watching me as I escaped its clutches. What was more, however, was what I suddenly realized was wrong with my body. As I mentioned, before the incident, I had begun to wash myself in the shower and had already rinsed much of the grime from the previous few days of my trip off. I should have been spotless, covered in only soap and water. So why, then, when I viewed the photo attached to that email, was my body covered in small, muddy handprints?
A kayaking holiday, traversing the open water, just a daughter and her mother. Sounds great, right? And it is. It's fascinating, too. So much to discover on the route. Like that wreck of a cargo ship just underwater, a popular attraction for kayakers and divers. But in this tale, shared with us by author David Hubbard, the wreck holds more of a draw than a simple sightseeing spot. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight, Nicole Doolin, Ellie Hirschman, Matt Bradford, and Graham Rowett. So keep an eye on that movement from the cave entrance and listen carefully. Is that a voice calling you? Maybe it wants you to investigate closer. Maybe it's summoning you to explore the SS Tribute. alive when the Tribute sank, were you? The what? The SS Tribute. It was a cargo ship. One of the biggest in the world. You see that rock up ahead of us? There was a gnarled gray rock sticking up out of the sea a couple of hundred feet from our kayaks. It was covered in bird shit. Yeah? And that rock we paddled past back there? I stopped paddling and twisted round at the waist to look. It was even further away than the rock in front. The waves gently nudged us forward. Uh-huh. Well, the tribute was that long. What, from one rock to the other? Yeah. Jesus. Language. Sorry. Mom picked up her paddle and dug into the water. She skimmed effortlessly over the waves. Meanwhile, I was struggling just to stay upright as they rocked me left to right. She stopped and waited for me. She'd been doing that all day. So what happened to it? Hmm? The SS... Tribute, was it? Why'd it sink? The crew saw a smaller vessel struggling against the waves, right up near the cliffs. They had a little rescue boat on board, so they sent it out, but didn't anchor the Tribute properly. The weather turned, and by the time they realized what was happening, it was too late. Too late for what? The waves carried the Tribute into the rocks. It crushed the smaller boats, and the crew had to jump into the water. They ended up stuck in the caves waiting for the rescue team to find. And the tribute? You remember the fish I gutted the other night for dinner? Jesus. Oh, sorry. We kept paddling in silence for a couple of minutes. The shit-covered rock was slowly getting closer. Mom would glide forward, cutting through the waves like scissors through wrapping paper, then turn her head, dig in her paddle, and wait for me to catch up, splashing all the way. The sun was slowly making its way towards the horizon. My arms were starting to feel like noodles. Why'd you bring it up, Mom? Hmm? The cargo ship? It's a scary story, I guess. I mean, it's not really that scary. There weren't any ghosts or monsters, just a big accident. So it didn't scare you at all? No. Mom stopped paddling. Maybe you should be. Here we go. I'm serious. The sea's dangerous, okay? It's fine for us to come out like this. The sky's clear. It's daytime. The water's pretty warm this time of year. And you've got me with you. But it can turn just like that. I know, Mom. Do you? Aye, the sea's a cruel mistress. Honey, I'm serious. I know, I know. Then act like it. Mom 
didn't normally shout at me. She kept paddling. After a second, I followed her. The rock still looked so far off. Isn't this a safe part of the coast, though? Accidents happen, but round here's pretty good, right? That's what they always say? Look down, honey. What? Look down into the water. Um, okay. Can you see anything? The water was really clear. I could see pretty far down as it stretched off into blueness. A couple of fish swam by a few feet below me. Fish? And below them. Blue? And below that. I don't know. The bottom? You can see the bottom. Not really. But it can't be that far down, can it? I mean, the cliffs are right there. If you got out of your kayak now and swam straight down, you'd be swimming through 200 feet of empty water before you touched anything solid. That's not that bad. How tall are you? 5'5". Five, 5'4". Five. Five, Don't flatter yourself. Fine. 5'4". So that's... That's like 40 of me to reach the bottom. Yeah, see? It's not that bad. Who said anything about the bottom? What? I said something solid. Okay. Mom didn't say anything. The shit rock still didn't look much closer. All right, I'll bite. What's the something solid, Mom? She didn't answer. Hello, Earth to Mom. What happened to... In the sea, communication is key. Figure it out. I stopped paddling. A gull took off from shit rock and glided over our heads all the way to the rock we'd left far behind. Wait, the tribute? Uh-huh. I looked at the rock still far in front of us. I looked at the rock far behind us. Then I looked down into the water. Suddenly, I felt very, very small in my kayak. A little wave splashed up and almost knocked me over. I didn't want to think about how much bigger the waves that sank the tribute must have been. Forty of me down. Then a cargo ship. Then the bottom. That's spooky enough for you. I didn't answer. The bow is jammed against that rock up there. The stern is back behind us. Oh, but you're right. This is a safe part of the coast. All right, Mom, I get it. Big old ship full of ghosts somewhere in the depths. I get it. No, you don't. You're still scared of the wrong thing. Mom stopped paddling again. Ghosts aren't real. You know that. What's real is the 200,000 tons of rusted cargo ship that was thrown against the cliffs as carelessly as you'd knock a paper cup off a table. I get it. The sea's dangerous. The sea doesn't care. Out here, what happens, happens, and there's nothing you can do to change it. Okay. Okay? Okay, Mom, yeah, I get it. I tell you that whole story and you're scared of ghosts. Honestly. All right, Mom, you've made your point. I should think so. We paddled on in silence. Shit Rock was getting a bit bigger now. I didn't really want to be out in the kayak anymore. And I didn't want to be between these two rocks either. Mom was paddling at my pace now, just a little ahead of me. What do you want to eat when we get in? We still get some of that fish in the freezer. Yeah, sure. I'm sorry for shouting, honey. It's fine. Another little wave rocked my kayak. I managed to ride this one a bit better. Mom, those caves? Yeah? 
Did the crew get rescued in the end? Not all of them. Okay. I looked over at the cracks in the cliffside. Waves were breaking gently around them, very slowly eroding away the rock. In the light of day, they didn't look too bad. Plenty of room for a couple of kayaks. In fact... Mom? Hmm? What is that? What's what, honey? There, at, at the entrance to that cave. Which cave? Where? Right there. I'm not crazy, right there. There's something in the water. Mom didn't say anything. She sat very still and upright in her kayak. Then, without warning, she was paddling over to the cliff. Mom? I splashed after her. If I'd been struggling to keep up before, I had no chance now. She cut through the water as if it wasn't there at all, allowing the waves to carry her faster and faster. Mom? Hello? Rocks started to jut out of the water around us. The cliff entrance yawned wider and wider the closer we got. Something bobbed out of the water right in the cave's entrance. It looked almost like a little head. Hello? Mom, what's that? The head disappeared in the water. It popped up again somewhere further in the cave and then vanished for good. If I didn't know any better... Hello? Mom, was that a dog? Shh. Hello? Hello? Are you okay in there? Mom, you're not going in there, are you? Shh. Hello? Mom, that, that sounds like a kid. I know. Okay, honey, listen. I'm going in there. Wait, Mom, no. No. You literally just lectured me about how dangerous the sea is. I know. And how you're just going to throw that away and... Shut up. Honey, now's not the time. One day when you have a kid, you'll understand. We need to call the Coast Guard. Mom was biting her lip. A drop of blood appeared. She licked it off and looked straight at me. Stay here. Mom. Listen to me. Stay here. Watch the tide. As soon as it goes above that rock, start shouting at me. I'll be out before you know it. The cave won't go that deep. Mom, I don't like this. Two seconds, then I'll be out and we'll go home and make dinner, okay? The Coast Guard... They'll take a while to get here. I've done cave kayaking before. I'll be in and out. If it's too dangerous, we call them, okay? Okay? Yeah. Repeat my instructions. Honey. Um, okay. Watch the tide. When I can't see that rock, start shouting. Then dinner. Then dinner. For a moment, I couldn't read Mom's face. She looked like she was either going to cry or shout at me. She didn't do either. She just turned towards the cave and started paddling. It was scary how quickly she disappeared into the darkness. Something bumped my kayak. The water had carried me into a rock. I pushed away from it and tried to get my bearings. Which rock was it that she told me to watch? That one, right? Must have been. Yeah, yeah, that one. Okay, just watch that rock. Don't think about ghosts. A wave caught the rock next to me and threw spray up into my eyes. Then another... When I wiped the water away, the world was darker. I looked up at the sky. I could have sworn there weren't that many clouds before. I couldn't hear Mom in the cave anymore. Mom? Mom? Nothing. It's fine. It's okay. Just two seconds and she'll be out. Then, Then we'll go for dinner. Just two seconds. Just watch the rock and... Shit. 
the rock? Which rock? They had all moved. They must have. Where else could they have gone? It was that rock I was supposed to be watching. Yeah, that one. I glanced at the entrance to the cave. The entrance didn't look so tall now. The water can't have risen that much, surely. I could see the water line marked up on the cliff where the sea would normally rise to. It was maybe a foot above the entrance to the cave. Mom? My voice didn't sound so sure this time. The world went very quiet. Mom? I was suddenly underwater. Something solid crunched against my shoulder. Seawater in my lungs. My eyes only saw painful blurs. I screwed them shut. My legs couldn't move. The kayak, what what was I supposed to do again? My fingers fumbled around blindly. I found the handle and pulled. I tumbled upwards out of the kayak further into the water. Another rock hit my back. I started kicking, swimming harder and harder, reaching for the surface. I stretched an arm out and touched sand. Sand? I tried to yell, but more water poured into my lungs. Shit. Shit, 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 shit. Oh, fuck. Shit. Shit. The water pulled me. I tried to open my eyes again, but it was dark. Sand scraped at them. The tide was carrying me now, dragging me along, bouncing me against the seabed. I could feel my lungs starting to spasm. Just one breath. Lights. Somewhere inside my eyelids. Dancing around looking like curtains still open. The water broke. Sound flooded back into the world. I threw up salt water, feeling it trickling warmly down my cheek. Air. Water splashed into my mouth, but I spat it out and breathed again. Air. For a long time, I just lay there with my eyes closed. Air. A bit of seawater. Spit it out. Air. Half of me was still in the water. Half of me on sand. I tried to get up, but my arm wouldn't move. The more I thought about it, the more it ached. Actually, could it... Oh, fuck! Pain flooded through it, enough to make me open my eyes. Darkness. Complete darkness. I lay very still. My shoulder burned. Darkness. All I could hear was the water gently lapping under my back. Hello? Even a little whisper made me start coughing. My coughs echoed back at me from far too close. Okay, okay, I'm in the cave, that's fine. At least I'm not underwater, right? A wave splashed up into my mouth, filling it with sand and salt. Very gently, I rolled onto my side. My right arm flopped limply onto the sand with a painful thud. Another wave splashed up against me, pushing me up the bank. I shuffled the rest of the way until my head touched stone. My legs were still in the water. Okay, okay, that's good. Progress, okay. I was in a crack in the cave, probably a little offshoot. Judging from how dark it was, I must have been in pretty deep. Looking at my legs, though, I noticed I could just about see the red stripes on the sides of my wetsuit. There was a chink of light coming from above. A little fault in the rock that must have gone all the way up out of the cave reflected from wall to wall until it was barely brighter than nothing. The roof of the cave sloped down into the water. One way in, one way out. Something hard was pressing into my thigh. Of of course, my phone. I reached in and unzipped the waterproof pocket. I almost fumbled the phone into the water straight away. 
My left hand wasn't cooperating like my right one usually did. The screen lit up. Nine, one, one. I put it up to my ear and waited. No signal. Shit. I lifted it higher, as high as I could reach, propped up on my broken shoulder. I pressed dial. No signal. Oh God, come on, please. One bar. 911, what is your emergency? A wave rocked me and knocked all my weight onto my bad arm. Ah. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, yes, please, please, I need help. I'm in a cave, the sea, it, it, it washed me in, there was this kid and my mom. Mom. Are you still there? Hello? Do you know where this cave is exactly? I... I don't... Um, the coast? It's where the ship sank. There was a big ship that sank, and and I'm in a cave there. You have to help me. We can send the Coast Guard. Keep the line open, and in the meantime, find a safe place. No, 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 you're breaking up. Please, please, I need help. The, 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 The Tribute. It's a cave where the SS Tribute... The call had already dropped. No matter what angle I tried, how high I stretched my arm, I couldn't get any signal. I think it was at that point I started crying. I couldn't tell you how much time had passed. I don't really want to think about it. Anyway, I probably would have stayed like that for a lot longer if I hadn't noticed the water. When I first got washed into the cave, it was splashing around my thighs, but as I lay there trying to find any kind of signal, it crept up on me. I think it was when I started shivering that I noticed it was at my chest. I tried to shuffle further out, but the back of my head hit rock. I came to the sickening realization that I couldn't actually fully extend my arm any direction other than upwards, and even then, I was only a few inches clear of the cave ceiling. I think that was the first time I realized I would die in that cave. Mom? I could barely even hear my own voice. Mom? Mom? I need some help. All of a sudden, I was four years old again with my legs stuck in a neighbor's fence. I thought I could climb through the gap until the splinters came. The more I struggled, the deeper they'd gone until I just lay there helpless on the sidewalk, blood all over the white paint, waiting for Mom to come and save me, just like she always did. Mom? Mom, where are you? Hello? No. That must have been in my head, surely. Hello? No. That was it again. It was that voice from before, the voice that Mom followed into the cave. Just a kid, and a young kid at that. Are you okay? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm... Wait, where are you? Here. Where's here? Can't you see me? No. Oh, where are you? I'm stuck. In a cave? The voice was coming from above echoing through the crack in the rock. Now that I paid attention, I could hear a dog barking, too. Where are you? In the playground, silly. Playground? What playground? The big one. It clicked. My stomach dropped. There was a playground up on top of the cliffs. I'd seen it as we drove down to sea that morning. That gap in the rock must have gone all the way up there. Great. Okay, I need you to listen very carefully to me. Mommy says I shouldn't talk to strangers. Okay, well, my name's Sarah. There, we're not strangers anymore. My name's Toby. Toby, such a lovely name. Is your mommy around, Toby? Uh Uh-huh. Could you go and get her, please? 
Okay. I suddenly felt very alone. For what felt like agonizingly long, I laid there in the dark. I was shivering now. A lot. Sarah? Yeah, I'm here. Is your mommy there? No, she said it's time to go home. Toby? I asked if she wanted to speak to you, and she laughed. Toby, I need you to ask again. Tell her I'm real, okay? Will you be here tomorrow? Toby, listen to me. I'll be back tomorrow, and Mommy can come then, okay? Toby? 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 That was the second time I realized I was going to die in that cave. Again, it was the water that stopped me crying. This time, it was when the first wave splashed up into my mouth. I think my body was just starting to shut down from the cold. I couldn't even feel my broken shoulder anymore. In fact, the water was starting to feel kind of warm. Like it was inviting me just to duck my head under and swim into the darkness. Something brushed my leg. I jumped back so hard it knocked feeling back into my shoulder. (laughs) I backed into the wall. I hadn't imagined that, had I? There was definitely something in here with me. Somewhere in the water... Not that far from me sat a cargo ship, one of the longest ever to go into the ocean, the longest ever to sink. How many bodies had they recovered? Stop it. You're not adding ghosts to your problem right now, okay? Just calm down. Calm down. The water shifted. Now, it couldn't have. I was imagining things. There There was nothing in there with me. Just me. Just me on my own with no one around to help, no one to call, no mom, no Toby, just little old me in my little cave. You know, it was actually starting to grow on me. I always liked natural architecture. There it was again. For real this time, I I didn't imagine that. There was something moving in the water. I was on my tiptoes by this point. The water was now carrying me. I hesitantly reached up to the ceiling. What had been out of my reach when I needed to call to the Coast Guard was now only a couple of inches above my head. I found the crack in the rock with my hand. It felt reassuring somehow, in a cold, hard, rocky kind of way. Just don't think about the thing in the water. Think happy thoughts. Happy thoughts like... like Toby. Toby seemed happy. He sounded like he was having fun. If he could have fun up there, maybe I can have fun down here too. Salt water splashed into my mouth. I kicked off from the bottom and started treading water. Just like swimming lessons, that's all this is, just another swimming lesson. I could only paddle with one arm. The other hurt too much to move. Okay, this is fine, it's all fine. I just have to swim here for a bit until, well, until whatever happens, happens. Mom's voice played somewhere quietly in the back of my head. Whatever happens, happens, and there's nothing you can do to change that. It's going to happen. I'm going to die. And there's nothing I can do to change that. But I don't want to die. The sea surged and smacked my face against the rocky ceiling. The warmth of blood felt alien on my lips. I tried to breathe, but water filled my mouth. I only had a couple of inches of air left. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to Please, don't let me die. God, if you're out there, I I don't want to die. I want to go home. I want to eat fish for dinner. I want to go and play with Toby. I want my mom. Please, 
Please, don't let me die. Another swell of water. I had to press my lips through the crack to breathe. If the tide came in another inch, I was done. Please. Something brushed my leg again. It was here. Whatever was in the water was here with me. It wrapped around my leg again. It felt warm as it pressed against my thigh, then my torso. I clenched my good fist and readied it. I couldn't punch well in this water, but that sure as hell wasn't going to stop me trying. I sank my fist into whatever it was as hard as I could. It was warm. Really warm and soft. It had hair floating around it in the water. I felt around to find a head. A head with big floppy ears and a mouthful of rounded canines. Canines? A collar. My hand found a collar. I couldn't believe it. I took my last gulp of breath and ducked underwater. I couldn't see a thing, but I felt the dog pressing against me. It climbed up my body and stuck its muzzle into the crack in the rock, just long enough to bark. Then the dog was off, swimming down. I was holding its collar as it tried to pull me along. For a confused moment, I held the dog back as I felt it kicking before I pushed off and followed it. My right arm was useless, but with my left holding the collar and my feet kicking, I swam down into the darkness. The dog paddled frantically in front of me. I had no clue how long dogs could hold their breath, but I could already feel my lungs starting to give out. I wasn't sure if we were even going anywhere. The current was so strong, pushing us back and that we could have been going backwards. My legs were burning. My shoulder was bumping against rocks. Every time it did, I almost lost my grip on the collar. Everything hurt. Somewhere out there, the water was glowing. I didn't know if I could see it or feel it, but it was there. The collar slipped from my fingers. I reached out and grabbed it again. It was being pulled back behind me. I wrapped my arm around the dog and tried to pull him closer. He'd stopped swimming. The water was glowing. The dog was warm in my arms. I was five years old. Before I remembered anything, I was at home, almost asleep, my face on the pillow, a hot water bottle against my chest. It was all I needed, all I ever needed. Just me and my pillow and my hot water bottle, almost asleep, so close. If mom could just come and close the curtains. It was still sunny outside, still too sunny, too much light coming through the window. I didn't want to get up, but mom's hands were on my shoulders and and she was pulling me up, up. The water broke. There were were noises everywhere. I, I wanted to go back to bed. Someone was carrying me, putting things around me. There were lights, too many lights, and talking. Couldn't they just leave me alone? Hello, miss, can you hear me? Hello. Something bright was in my eyes. A a man had a flashlight in my face. I turned my head away. Where was my pillow? Where was my hot water bottle? Uh Uh-oh. She's conscious. Guys, she's conscious. Can you hear me, miss? Dog. My dog? It's okay. You just rest, all right? Guys, is there a dog in the water? Has anyone seen a dog? That was the last thing I remember before falling asleep. I dream every night. Sometimes it's about monsters and ghosts. Sometimes I can fly. Sometimes I get to see mom again. I woke up in the hospital about 18 hours later. Aside from my busted shoulder, they had to treat me for pneumonia, severe exhaustion, dehydration, and a whole load of cuts and bruises. 
For a while, they were worried I'd have brain damage from oxygen deprivation, but I got cleared on that front. Most of the doctors who came in to see me knew me by two names, Miracle Girl or Dog Girl. The nice ones just called me Sarah. The Coast Guard apparently spent the whole evening searching caves up and down the shoreline. They'd actually called off the search before they found me. On the way back in, they'd spotted a little boy waving frantically from the top of the cliff. They stopped to wave back, which is when they saw me in the water. They searched around for a bit, but couldn't find a dog. Apparently, they spotted one walking around on the rocks just up the coast from there, but figured that it it couldn't have been the same one. I'm going to choose to believe that it was. I've tried to tell people my story. I don't think any of the doctors quite understand it, but, but that's okay. The dog who saved me is somewhere out there playing fetch, just like my mom is somewhere up there cooking me dinner, waiting for me to get home. Is it sad? Sure. I don't get to see my mom anymore. At least not for a while. Of course that's sad. For now, I'm still here. Somehow. So I guess now it's just up to me to figure out why. It's easy to withdraw when we've lost someone, especially a sibling. That's the case for Charlie, who finds himself becoming increasingly reclusive after the death of his brother. But Charlie's seclusion doesn't last for long. When a neighbor brings over some mistakenly delivered mail from Charlie's surviving sibling, his sister. But in this tale, shared with us by author Devin McNerland, Charlie's sister's correspondence contains some strange, perhaps worrying, information. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Kyle Akers, Addison Peacock, and Dan Zapula. So find out about the strange sounds Charlie's sister has been hearing, discover the weirdness that goes on in her area when blackouts occur, and uncover the mystery of the Midnight Drummer. I have spent what feels like ages slowly melding into my couch. A new sitcom that will be gone by next month. I changed the channel. A rerun of last night's game of Jeopardy. Saw it last night. Blackouts on the East Coast. Slow news day. I sluggishly break the crust forming on my neck to search for tonight's entertainment. I crane my neck around the room. I've used too much energy. I'm exhausted. I slump back into the same pattern as before and glare at the iridescent screen. Nothing's on TV. In other news, President Bill Clinton's re-election... I switch back to Jeopardy. My stomach growls like thunder. I've been putting it off for hours, but eventually a man's gotta eat. 
I slowly peel myself out of the leather couch. With each vertebrate, a rip tears through the air as my skin forcibly removes itself from the mold I have created with my comatose state. My stomach roars. Yeah, I'm going. The light from my fridge shocks my weary eyes. I peer through the thick light to see an almost empty fridge. The only thing that sits there, lonely, is a can of sardines. I open up my contacts and scroll through the assortment of delivery restaurants and stumble upon my sister. I haven't seen her in a while. I haven't seen many people in a while. I continue through my phone. I call the Chinese food place and shuffle slowly back to my self-molded chasm. I succumb to the will of the broadcast stations and watch their bubblegum TV. Sweet, but hard to swallow when it leaves me empty. The doorbell finally rings. It's so far away. I lay in the perfectly molded crevasse, wondering how to climb out. With Herculean strength, I ascend. I shuffle towards the distant door, knowing that the teenager on the other side has more to live for. I can't stand him. I haven't even seen his face, but I fucking hate him. I reach for my wallet and open the only entrance to my shelter from the outside world. It's my neighbor standing in the dimly lit hallway. Stains riddle the carpet. Where the hell is my food? I almost said that out loud. I have to slow down. Hey! I pause, a bit off-put. I've never said anything past hello. He doesn't seem my type. Well-dressed and timid. He seems lonely. I scramble for the right words. What do you want? Wrong words. Uh, hey, man. I've been getting your mail for a little bit. Been meaning to hand it off for a while. Thanks. I grab my mail. Why didn't he just leave it in front of my door? A long pause, almost like he's waiting for something. Spit it out. Well, enjoy your mail. Yep. Christ, I remember why I don't go outside anymore. I sift through the daily reminders to shop at Kroger, the overdue utility notices, and the Bible's worth of uh, porno mags. They weigh heavy in my arms, but my soul has accepted my gluttony. I pass a few more letters, mostly cards apologizing for my loss. I never appreciated those. They're hollow. People expect good karma from something so disingenuous. As I keep sifting, I stumble upon a letter from my sister. Ah, coincidences. I stare at the letter, not really sure what to think about it. How old is this? Why write a letter? We're at the peak of technology. We have dial-up for fuck's sake. Maybe I should call her. Not yet. I worry a bit too much sometimes. I rip open the envelope. Dear Charlie, the funeral is canceled. I'm sure you've heard about the blackouts in New York. I'm safe for now, but completely terrified. I couldn't call. 
My cell phone died before I could charge it and the landline is down. I can barely sleep anymore. The feral cats make the most disturbing noises. Sometimes I'm not really sure if they're actually feral cats or not. My across-the-hall neighbor went outside during maybe the third or fourth day. He came back and didn't say a word. He's usually so friendly and polite. I've had him and his wife over for dinner so many times. They've babysat Delilah almost every day after she came home from school. I don't know what could have happened, but when he came, I could see what I thought was blood on his shoe. How could things get that bad out there? There haven't been riots, at least not any that I'm aware of, so my mind wanders to more brutal, more personal crimes. I'm running low on food. I'll have to go out soon. I don't know what Delilah's going to do while I'm away. She'll have to stick here alone for a little. The nights are unbearable for me. Shadows move outside the window. I can hear things climb the fire escape. I've run out of excuses to tell Delilah. The worst thing by far is every night, midnight on the dot, there is this sickly drumming. And with every thud is a disgusting moan. I tried ignoring it the first few nights, but it's so eerie. It reminds me of the blood on my neighbor's shoe. Every time I hear that moan, it sends shivers down my spine. This is going to sound crazy, but the voice that's moaning sounds so familiar. I know, I know, (laughs) crazy, right? How can you tell a voice from a moan? I've tried my best to find out what it is, but no luck. I've looked out the window, but I couldn't see anything in the pitch black especially anything that would be on street level. I've shined my flashlight down. Nothing. I would try to go back to sleep, but it's torturing. Every goddamn night, drum after drum after drum, my mind is being splintered. I need to get out of this place. Brandon's death has devastated all of us, Charlie. I guess the reason I'm writing is... I was hoping to stay with you until the blackout clears up. It would mean a lot. I'm just so scared. Love, your sister, Claire. Canceled the funeral over a little power outage. Christ, that blackout's gotten to her head. Do I write back? She might already be on her way. I look around at the filth and waste that is built up around me. I look at the clock. 11.37. Damn, my sleep schedule is messed up. I go back to the cozy indent on my couch and continue mindlessly consuming last night's episode of Jeopardy. I'm not really paying attention. Should I call her? Her phone is dead. She's probably on her way. What is Nestle? I tell Alex Trebek half-heartedly. Maybe she charged it at a gas station. She's on her way. No, you idiot. Maybe I should be on Jeopardy. My phone is shaming me. I can feel it. She's on her way. Fuck. 
and I give in. I pick up my cell phone and scroll past the multitude of delivery food contacts to finally reach my sister. I'm getting impatient, and Alex Trebek won't shut up about the Daily Double. That fucking funeral was already messing my mind up, and now this blackout shit. What now? I swing open the door to see a shitty, disgusting teenager with my food. Fuck. Completely forgot I even ordered. I hand him the cash, take my food, and slam the door before he can even hand me the change. It's ringing, and there must be a charge. It goes to voicemail. God damn it! I chuck the phone across my apartment. I can't lose another sibling. I breathe. She's on her way. She'll call me in the morning. She's probably just sleeping. Maybe I TiVo'd the 11 o'clock news. Each fucking bong the TiVo makes sends me into a rage of fury. I search through my pointless DVR. Nothing! I run to my computer. Hopefully this clunky piece of shit will run. And I can find some information on the blackouts. The Windows logo stuns me as the shine creates a halo around my face. I stare at the screen. Inch by inch, the starting up process moves along. I stare it down. Intimidation usually works. The letter from my sister lingers, building an acidic pressure in the back of my mind. With each and every second that passes by, the burden gets heavier and heavier. Fuck, 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 fuck! Where's my phone? Maybe I should call her one more time. While the computer is loading, I try to recollect the general direction I chucked my phone. I'm destroying carefully built skyscrapers of trash, scrounging through the crusty and damp laundry, delicately and softly covering the floor like sand dunes on a desert. I hear my computer croak, and I give up the search for now. I type in my password, but each letter takes eons to finally show up in the password bar. I pause and close my eyes as frustration drains from my body. A knock on the door launches me back into electric fury. Who the fuck is knocking on my door? I storm over to the breach in my sanctuary and swing it open. It's my neighbor. Hey, uh, I couldn't help but hear you from down the hall. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. I'm about to shut him out for the sake of my peace, but a thought slithers into existence. Have you heard anything about the blackouts on the East Coast? I'm sure his answer will be as mundane as he is. Not much, but nothing good. Why? Fuck him. He did that on purpose. Nothing. Thanks for checking up on me. Like he even fucking cared to begin with. Oh, no problem. Let me know. I slammed the barrier shut. I can finally look it up for myself so I can prove the lying scumbag across the hall wrong. Everything's fine on the East Coast. She's fucking paranoid. The words come out soft and weak. I run Internet Explorer. 
My computer struggles in the late hour as if I woke it up. I bang it a few times. A thud from down the street grabs my attention. Why did she focus on the drumming out of all things? That could be anything. Finally, Explorer opens. I quickly type in East Coast Blackouts. Green slowly crawls along the search bar, standing its ground every few seconds as if it's trying to taunt me. Come on, come on. It's so fucking close, I can taste it. Every grueling second here is one more in ignorance. I think about screaming again, but that attracts pests. I am stuck in this eternal rage with no release. It's grueling. The search bar freezes mere nanometers from the end. It is so close. Another nanometer goes by. Come on. It just raises my anxiety. Another nanometer. I am beginning to crack. Another nanometer. I am going insane. Another nanometer. I freeze in anticipation. Another nanometer. The search bar stops. I am going to pop a vein. I clench my fists and teeth. Giving in to my rage, I... The webpage loads. Yes! It's at that exact second the power goes out. Alec Trebek's voice no longer fills the room. I sit in silence. I've been defeated. The transformer probably blew. That's all. It's just my building. I try to look out my window, but the city is dark. It's just my block. My eyes adjust to the dark and I stand perfectly still, trying to listen for feral cats. It's nothing. It'll all pass in the morning. I look at the clock. It's dead. I should just sleep it off. I stay frozen. Get some sleep. What was that blood on the neighbor's shoe? No matter now. My sister's going to be here in the morning. I just have to keep calm. I wander off to my bed, stubbing my toe on the kitchen counter. Maybe I'm delusional. Brandon's death was rough on everyone. I lay down, and my exhaustion is already getting the better of me. Is Delilah okay? A long blackout like that must freak her out. I take a deep breath and try to put it out of my mind. What's with those cats? My sister's paranoid. She'll be here in the morning. I leave the thought behind. The phrase, things climb the fire escape, flickers across my restless brain. Electricity's out. People use the fire escape instead of the elevator. I toss the idea aside and pay no attention to the glaring discrepancies. I silence my active imagination and rest. I'm dragged out of my slumber, groggy, 
What the hell is that noise? My heart skips a beat as heavy realization hits me. I bolt out of my bedroom. I'm going to fucking kill this guy. He's fucking with me. My neighbor must have read the letter. I go to my balcony and shout down. Hey, what the absolute fuck are you doing? He looks up. It's not my neighbor. I see no eyes staring back at me. No mouth to respond. A faceless drummer is staring back at me with his deep cosmic blue skin. My heart races as I try to piece this impossibility together. I can feel my brain breaking. I must have been mistaken. I wipe the tiredness from my eyes. He's still there. It's hard to tell in the dark, but his head seems smooth. No hair. A dull blue void stands before me, holding a band drum. Get get out of here, kid. Your jokes aren't funny. He bangs the drum in response. Where did that moan come from if he doesn't have a mouth? Doesn't have a mouth? What the hell am I saying? It's probably some kid looking through people's fucking mail. My previous thought pops back into my head. It's my fucking neighbor. I fucking knew I couldn't trust him. Stop looking through my mail, Carson. He bangs the fucking drum. I'm done with this. You you want to play dumb, huh? I bust out of my apartment and start banging down the entrance to his place. The door opens. Hey, Charlie. Are you okay? I'm paralyzed. It's my neighbor. I don't say a word. The drum echoes down the hall. I walk back into my apartment. It's timed perfectly with each step I take. I grab a flashlight. Open the sliding doors to the balcony. Shine the flashlight down. The drumming stops. The light seems to terrify him. He uses his drum to shield himself against it, and I see it. Her mouth is gaping open. It looks like her organs are shoved down her throat. She is living and breathing. Tears flood her eyes. Her face stretched across this monster's instrument. My sister... Smells. They're said to be one of the biggest memory triggers. We associate smells with a lot of important memories in our lives, whether we realize it or not. And so the scent of something can be hugely formative to us. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jay Sisko, we discover what happens when the smell you regard with such fondness is something which leaves you ashamed. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis and Kyle Akers. 
So let's head to the site of an unusual smell, the crematorium at a veterinarian clinic. And let's take a deep sniff of those sweet remains. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't appealing. It's one of the first things you notice. But you never talk about it. Ever. And when all my years, not one member of staff, no janitor, no grieving family member who insisted on being there when it happened, talked about the smell. It makes you think you're the only one to notice. You stay up late at night wondering if there's something wrong with you. Whether it's some caveman instinct that after millennia can still only see meat as meat. Then you see them when they come in, stumbling on their paws, coughing weakly in between yowls and howls of fear as you prop them up and pat them down. See the sadness and acceptance in their little faces as they have one last cuddle before crossing the rainbow bridge into oblivion. And you know that's bullshit. Your heart melts for the little creatures right up until the fire swallows them. I never talked to anyone about the smell, but I know they all feel it, too. My first day on the job, the guy who started with me didn't even wait for us to be out of the crematorium before suggesting we go get lunch. He had steak, a medium rare, and I had a roast. We both acknowledged that our meals were missing a certain something... That they were okay at best. Even as I said that, my palms were sweaty, my mind raced. It was like remembering something about yourself that you've repressed, something that changes how you see your entire life. Even through the burnt hair and the sound of family members crying, even through the heartbreak you felt when you watched it shuffle off this mortal coil, they smell delicious. Still, you move on, you wait it out until it's past cooking and the smell fades and it's ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You feel a brief cloud of shame before remembering that this time, as with all others, you didn't give in. Such a known secret is hard to not talk about, though. Sometimes the smell was so strong I'd excuse myself to go throw up. I'd force myself if I had to. Anything to put me off to associate the smell with something I hated. In the aftermath, listening to the rushing water and the distant sobbing, I'd feel clean. Then, by sundown, I was a nervous wreck again as the desire, the sheer curiosity of it, ate me from the inside. The internet gave me some solace. I reached out, phrased the question as nonchalantly as I could and received the validation I needed to be able to sleep at night. Other people knew, too. The smell was nicer than you'd think. The trick was to do nothing until you grew accustomed to it and stopped noticing altogether. They told me not to worry, and so I didn't. I went to work. I did my time. I thought about the crispy skin browning in the flames and did nothing. Until Judd started. 
Judd was a burnout, volunteering to make his resume look better, who smoked like a chilled-out chimney at every opportunity he got. He also stank. Weed I could deal with. More than a few animals came in with that stink on them. Though, unsurprisingly, the tale of their sudden illness almost never mentioned it. But he didn't shower, either, and he used that kind of deodorant that boasts containing no dangerous chemicals and, as such, it doesn't work. Thanks to Judd, I, I couldn't smell anymore. All day long at work, my nostrils burned with his stench, my stomach curdling when he spoke to me. He didn't brush his teeth, though he claimed to, but he, you don't end up with a mouth like a geyser filled with trash water by brushing daily. Visitors held their hankies to their mouths all the more often. The animals feared him and his greasy mitts, and I absolutely hated him. But it wasn't until the next cremation that I realized just how bad things were. Alone, together in that hot room, his smell was overwhelming. It dizzied me, it made my ears ring and my eyes water, and no matter where I stood, it wormed its way into my throat and made me breathe it in. All the while, a Doberman cooked, crisped, and then disintegrated unnoticed. After he'd scooped the remains into an urn and made his exit, I sat on the floor for what felt like a year. I felt robbed, confused, like, like an addict whose needle snaps against his skin, whose nostrils clamp shut against cocaine. The high passed me by. It ignored me. That night, when I ate dinner, I tasted nothing. Nothing at all. I told myself it was for the best. There are better smells, I said. Better tastes. It's creepy, anyway. What kind of sick fuck wants to eat an animal that just got put down? What weirdo looks at a grieving family and thinks this is the right time to think about eating? He was sick. It's deranged. Judd was doing me a favor by taking it away from me before I could let it ruin my life. But I couldn't sleep. Couldn't taste. I couldn't smell anything but Judd. Even at home, after hours of scrubbing and scouring my skin with steel wool, nothing, nothing but putridity and sourness and the unwashed maw of that inane ball of filth. After two weeks, I could only half remember the smell of burning flesh. My mouth still ran like a faucet at the thought, but the high of it, the richness of the scent, the accent smoke that wasn't yet overpowering the inherent saltiness in the air. It was leaving me. I only had the words to describe it, not the memories. I would often find myself staring into space for hours at a time, not realizing until I pulled myself out of it that I was thinking about this impossible taste, then each time remembering that I'd, I'd never tasted it. No, I, I'd never tasted it. One month... Then two, but it never stopped gnawing, even for a second. I started to make more mistakes. More routine procedures were complicated. More surgeries botched. Because how could I look at them now? How could I look into the organs of these creatures when I was obsessed with their taste, desperate to tear into them with my bare teeth? I got distracted. 
caught up in my own head. Just like at home, I wouldn't realize my preoccupation until the flat line pierced my thoughts. I started to take more and more days off. Why was this such a big fucking deal? Why couldn't I just forget the smell? People forget experiences every day of their lives. Why was the shadow of this scent its mere suggestion of some coveted and forbidden meal so appealing to me? I craved it. I I loved it. I booked a vacation that I couldn't afford in Yulin during the dog meat festival. With barely a penny to my name, I I bought some. I ate it without seasoning, without sauce, with my bare hands as they burned against the furnace, fresh heat of its hide, ripping and tearing and sucking the cartilage out of the bones. I ate joint after joint, bowl after bowl, each transaction dragging me by the collar into debt. I tried as many dishes as the locals could offer me, sleeping under a bench a few streets away, in between festival hours, but it wasn't the same. With each mouthful, I was... I was angrier, more frustrated. The smell wasn't right either. It was full of pollutants of herbs and spices and marinades. Now, these animals were special bred and slaughtered, farmed for eating. They were too decadent, like a steak with too much fat, a burger with one too many fillings. They weren't the same. They weren't the same. I dragged myself back home. I was defeated, numb, my head still swarming with memories of meat that stung me every minute of the day. But I still walked and talked all the same. I could exist, if not in happiness. I showered, I cleaned up, I ate a regular meal that tasted of absolutely nothing at all. I felt strangely elated with my defeat. I knew it was unattainable, impossible, not just forbidden. It was like it didn't exist anymore. So there was nothing to feel sad about. I went back to work. I let Judd do the cremations from there on out, just him. He'd cleaned up a little since we'd last seen each other. He was still Judd, of course, but now he showered, even brushed his teeth. I didn't allow myself back into the crematorium. I didn't see the point. I spent my time comforting the families and with them, myself. Then, one day, Judd was late. Very late. It reached eleven, then twelve, one, and then two without him. The procedures went on longer. The surgeries were more time-consuming and more daunting. I used to be the only vet only nurses aside from me, but without Judd, none of them were quite the same. They were clumsier, less aware of themselves, and their hands were less skilled. At 5 p.m. we lost a patient, a Labrador, only four years old, beginning to get a benign lump removed. As it bled out onto the gurney, my coat and the nurse's trembling hands, I, I knew I wasn't ready. I dragged things out with the family, I took responsibility. They were furious. They threatened to sue, but all I could think about was how in about ten, maybe twenty minutes, I'd be back in that furnace room, alone, with the animal, the fire, and 
smell. I asked if they wanted to take the dog with them. Hmm? Bury it at home? I asked this louder than I should have, and their children started crying. They left, told me to go fuck myself, but by now I was barely listening. My stomach, you see, was about to fall out of me, shaking and protesting as I carried the animal down to the crematorium. Once we were down there, I set it on the gurney, ready to be pulled inside by the hydraulics, out of sight. I took some time to be sick, to prepare. Maybe, maybe I could just hit the button and run. Yeah, I I could do that. I hit the green button on the side of the furnace, and as the gears started up and the gurney was pulled inside, I sprinted to the door. Judd came in just as I pulled it open, and we collided, banging heads, first against each other, then on the floor. I saw stars, and then Judd's terror-stricken face as he helped me to my feet, looking me up and down. You okay, man? You look like you've seen a ghost. Did something happen? Uh, yeah. I I just... I I need to get out. I tried to lunge past him, but he caught me with his arm, holding me in place. Whoa, whoa. You just bashed your head in. Take it easy, okay? Stay still. I want to get a look at that. Any moment now, the smell was going to come flooding out. I couldn't be there. I couldn't. I... I couldn't. I couldn't. I was free. I was... I was happy. I was free. Judd, please, please, please let me go. I need to get out. I thrashed against him, reaching hopelessly for the door, but he only held me tighter. Calm down. I started screaming. I clamped my hands over my mouth and nose, held them shut. Death was better than this. Death was okay. I welcomed death. Lord knew I'd begged for it plenty over these last few months. I held on, curled up in a tight ball so Judd's newfound strength couldn't get to my face. I held on and on and on until my lungs gave up their screaming and my vision faded. Finally. The curtains drew. It all came down and I died pure. I woke up. I didn't have time to feel frustrated. I looked around and the air was simply rippling with it, the way it does during a heat wave or a gas leak. The smell. I breathed it in and it was like my lungs were drinking, growing fuller, fatter, richer with it. The stuff of life. I swam in it. My mouth watered. I stood up. Letting my head dizzy and my feet stumble until they were steady again. I pulled open the furnace, welcomed by a wall of heat that roared in my face, as if to guard the small heap inside. I pulled it out. My hands were numb, the fire couldn't hurt me, and eating it was like making love to a dream. It was fetish and romance, woman and man, supple and hard. It was everything. I felt my body ascending to become something I never knew existed. I looked at Judd. He was understandably mortified. He'd been there the whole time, standing by the wall, waiting for me to come to, then watching as I ate. He was appalled 
or maybe just shocked, <laughs> perhaps even impressed. It was difficult to say. I wasn't quite myself. Judd, did you ever notice how the, uh, how the cremations always smell so... <laughs> I, I couldn't. I had to laugh. I covered my eyes and chuckled. <laughs> how... <laughs> <laughs> How the cremations always smell so fucking good. <laughs> he, well, he didn't see the funny side. Instead, he strode over to me in quick steps and grabbed me by the back of the head. He lifted me up by it, forced me to look down on him as he brought my face close to his. My feet were dangling in the air, my lungs full of smoke. But what did I care? Who the hell cares anymore? I looked down at him, daring him. Punish me? Punish me? Hmm? How? <laughs> I was beyond him now. He smiled. Yeah, I have. It took me a moment to realize that he was... He was answering my question. Then... In one deft motion, he... he bit into my throat, like it was an apple. Soft, malleable fruit. I scrambled against his head for a moment, feebly. Then, then, as my blood escaped through him, I let my arms fall still. Oh... Oh, Judd. Beautiful, sweet Judd. How long did it take you to notice? How long for your own stink to subside enough for you to catch that beautiful scent? How long for you to crave it? How many months did you spend feasting in silence while I chased ghosts in China? I commend you, Judd. Never considered that the taste I coveted something more than just meat, that it was really the very essence of a recently extinguished life that smelled so damn good. In our final tale, we meet two best friends, John and Dean, who, for years now, have made a habit of going hunting every October. But you know what it's like. Even with beloved rituals, life gets in the way and the regularity drops off. But in this tale, shared with us by author T. Michael Argent, we rejoin John as he excitedly heads up to the hunting cabin for a reunion with his buddy, except... Dean's nowhere to be found. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Graham Rowett, and Jessica McAvoy. So lock and load, get ready for a mystery deep in the woods as we investigate the cabin named Indian Summer.
Dean and I had met in college. We were both studying economics, so we naturally had many of the same classes. After a time, I began to notice him and decided to strike up a friendship. To our surprise, it continued to last even after our university days were long over. We were both employed at firms across the street from each other, so we had lunch every Wednesday, and more often than not, I would head over to his house for Sunday supper with him and his wife, Janice. The other thing we bonded over besides our career choice was hunting. Every October, when Indian summer was at its peak, we would head up to a cabin, which we dubbed the same name, up in the mountains that had belonged to Dean's father and stay there for a week or so, stalking deer during the day and drinking beer all night. It was a hell of a time and a great excuse to get out and enjoy the last of the nice weather before winter really rolled in. Unfortunately, however, it had been a few years since we'd been up. Three years before, a heavy snowstorm had made the roads impassable. Two years before, our work schedules had been too hectic. And one year before, Janice had twisted her leg after tripping over a rock while she was jogging on a trail. It had taken a few hours before anyone had found her, and Dean wanted to stay behind and help her recuperate, and I couldn't blame him for that. That year, it looked like it was shaping up to be the exact same thing. In mid-September, Dean's firm had decided to take on a large client only a few weeks before the usual time the mythical trip up to Indian summer took place. There was a lot of bookkeeping to do, which meant long hours and probably no time off. I had resigned myself to another year without hunting when I was called over for Sunday dinner as usual on a dark, early October night. Janice pulled out all the stops, laying out the table with fried chicken, mashed potatoes, buttered corn, and gravy. I knew some big news was coming. Janice never cooked that hard unless an anvil was about to be dropped. I sighed and leaned back in my chair. She smiled at me. Oh, this is really good. Mm. Liked it, huh? I hope you're not too full. I've got pumpkin pie for dessert. I looked at Dean and frowned. Don't think I don't know what all this means. He gave a mock look of surprise. What could that be? You can't make the hunting trip this year. We're going to have to cancel again. You made Janice cook all this so I wouldn't feel bad. <laughs> Actually, friendo, that's just the opposite. It took 12-hour shifts over the past two weeks, but I was able to get all the shit for the new company done. For the first time in four years... Indian summer is officially a go. <clears throat> I almost spit out the beer I'd been drinking. Wait, what? No, you're joking. Dean clapped me on the back. Why would I joke about something so sacred? Such an important part of our year. I shot him a look, grinning. You mean like how it was so important the last four years? Janice walked through the door carrying the pie. Hey, it's not like I asked to twist my ankle. And last time I checked, Dean doesn't have control over the weather or his workload. Ah, <sighs> well, no more. Hell, we aren't getting any younger, John. I don't want to miss another year of this. Well, it's about time, man. I've missed it. So, what days are you thinking? I can get time off easy. He thought for a moment before speaking. Well, how does next Sunday night sound? You can get up there by then, right? Although I'm not sure you'll want to. Of course I want to. What kind of accusation is that? Janice began cutting slices. You guys haven't been up there in a while. You're going to spend all of Monday cleaning the place up and making sure the generator works. Ah, a little dirt never hurt anyone. I'm sure I can take it. That's good. Now, how about that pie?
I spent most of the next week getting everything ready to head up to the cabin. I made sure my deer tags were renewed and started cleaning my guns, among other things. I could tell I was so enthusiastic about preparing for the trip because I had missed it so much. Just Dean and I up there in that cabin was one of the things that really reminded you of what it meant to have a good friend. Except for a few co-workers I talked to occasionally, I didn't get out much. Dean and Janice, they were some of the only real friends I'd had my entire life. And I was happy to be able to recapture a special event that had disappeared for a few years. I hadn't realized it until then, but something had been missing from my life during that time. I felt a little less happy, a little less fulfilled. Dean and I usually rode up together, but he'd called me on Thursday night and said that we should go up separately. He didn't think one vehicle could hold everything we were bringing. What do you mean? We've gone on this trip before and we've gotten everything to fit. Yeah, well, we didn't bring as much beer as I'm bringing on this one. And plus, I packed all my carving gear. I want to make sure it's cut right this time instead of leaving it all up to that cheap-ass butcher. I thought about protesting that I'd never seen him carve up a deer before deciding to drop it. This was our first trip in years, and I didn't want it to start on the wrong foot. I could spare the extra gas money. By the time Sunday evening rolled around, I piled my bags by the garage and made sure I had everything in place. Licenses for the guns, plenty of changes of clothes in case we had to crawl through the mud or something, and a cooler full of beer. <laughs> lots and lots of beer. Even though it had been four years since I'd been up to the cabin, I knew the way there like the back of my hand. It was about an hour away from my house up in the mountains. The actual drive there had always been my favorite part. If you set out at night at just the right time in the evening, you could watch the sunset behind the peaks and arrive at the cabin just as the last flicker of light disappeared behind the mountains. The night I set out was no exception. It had been sunny out all day, leaving the entire sky at the mercy of the sunset. As my bags jostled and bumped against each other in the back, I got to see the horizon turn from blue to yellow, yellow to pink, pink to red, and red to purple. By the time the first few stars were coming out, the turn that led to the mountain road was awash in the last few rays of the dying sun. Yeah, I felt at peace and ready to waste an entire week away. The drive up the mountain took longer than I expected, whether because no one had used it in four years or Dean's car had torn up the thing coming up or something else, the road seemed rougher and harder to maneuver. By the time I hit the hand-painted sign Dean had put up about 10 years ago that said, Indian summer is coming your way, the sun had disappeared completely and darkness was settling in quickly. I went around the last curve and the cabin came into sight. It was just as nice, if not better than when I remembered seeing it last. A light burned brightly in the kitchen window, no doubt a sign that Dean was cooking up a big meal before we started the cleanup the next morning. His pickup was parked on the dirt driveway outside the front door. I pulled in behind it and shut the engine to my car off, sighing contentedly. This was going to be a great week. As I stepped out, I considered lugging my bags through the back door and surprising Dean, but decided against it. I couldn't have carried it all at once even if I tried. Hell, <laughs> the beer alone probably would have taken two trips. I walked up the path to the front door, almost knocked, thought the better of it, and just stepped right inside, letting the door shut behind me. Dean, I hope you haven't started drinking yet, because I've got enough in the back to choke it. But I never got to finish my sentence. As my voice died in my throat, I entered the kitchen. A large pool of water was seeping around the island and spreading across the floor. 
The faucet was running on full blast, burbling into an already full sink. On the counter, I could see a plate with two steaks on it, though they looked dried out and congealed. A can of seasoning salt beside them had overturned, covering the area beside the sink. Running forward, I stepped through the water and shut the faucet off. Dean? I stepped out of the kitchen and into the sitting room. The TV was on, displaying an old friends rerun. Evidently, Dean had gotten the generator to work. A chair was pulled up and a cold ashtray sat on the table beside it. Dean? I slowly went from room to room, calling Dean's name and not noticing anything particularly out of the ordinary. Dean? Dean? I went out onto the front porch and yelled his name out to the trees, but nothing stirred in the darkness. Hey, Dean? Dean? Hey, he's probably just out for a late night walk, I told myself. I guess he forgot to turn off the faucet or something. Boy, is he going to be mad about the mess. The self-made jokes weren't helping the growing pit in my stomach. Dean never went out for walks this late by himself. After what happened to Janice on the trail, he was afraid something like that would happen to him. So where was he? As I walked back into the house, I pulled my phone out and called Janice. She answered on the third ring. Hello? Hey Janice, it's John. Hey, listen, has Dean called you recently? Uh, he called about an hour ago, right after he got to the cabin. I was about to ask him when you were going to arrive when he got cut off. I tried calling back a few times, but he didn't answer. I looked around the kitchen and living room for his phone. There was no sign of it. I thought it was just a bad reception. Did something happen? Is he okay? I momentarily considered telling her about the condition of the cabin before deciding against it. There was no need to worry her more than she already appeared to be, though the validity of that thought was rapidly dwindling. I still tried to think that Dean was alright and there was a rational explanation. No, no, everything's fine. I just got here and I don't see him anywhere. He probably just went for a walk in the woods. There was silence on the other end of the line for a few moments. Are you sure? Dean never goes walking alone. I spent the next few minutes trying to quell the obvious panic forming in Janice's voice. Eventually, I calmed her down and told her I was going out to look for him. Okay, just call me when you find him, please. Will do, Jan. Don't worry. I hung up and leaned against the counter, hanging my head in my hands. This was not shaping up to be the relaxing week I'd hoped it would be. I grabbed a flashlight from one of the drawers and switched it on. As I walked down the hallway towards the rear of the cabin, I became aware of a banging noise coming from somewhere nearby. When I rounded the corner, I saw the back door was wide open, banging against something as it shook in the wind. It wasn't hitting the frame, though. A hand was outstretched and reaching inside, blocking the door from closing all the way. On the floor, I could see two points of light glinting in the gloom. I ran down the hall towards the door. 
As I ran past the glinting objects, I saw there were two shell casings lying spent on the carpet. When I pushed open the door, I saw a body lying face down on the back steps. A puddle of dried blood pooled underneath it. Its long, scraggly hair blew in the wind, whipping around its head. It was dressed in a red flannel shirt and dirty jeans. Its feet were coverless and coated in mud and grime. I bent down and turned the body over so it lay face up. The hand was still reaching inside, the rest of it looking like it would slide down the steps any second. I felt a sudden, strange urge of relief when I saw that it wasn't Dean. In fact, it wasn't anyone I recognized. I almost recoiled when I caught a glimpse of its face through the hair. It was ashen gray with a mouth stuck in a rictus grin. Dried blood flecked its lips and had crusted its chin. The eyes had rolled back in the head and looked dry. He had been here for a while. But who was he? I saw the bullet holes in his chest as I looked down. The front of the flannel was soaked with dried blood. What had happened here? Did someone shoot him in the woods and he tried to get to the cabin for help? Did he attack Dean and then get shot by him? If that was so, why hadn't Dean called anyone after it happened? I looked past the body to the tree line and underbrush ten feet away. Someone, probably the dead man on the steps, had cut a path through the sticks and bushes. Dean? Dean! No response. Mulling it over for a minute or two, I decided the path was as good a place as any to start looking. I know what you're thinking. Why didn't you call the police right after you found the body? They would have helped you look for Dean. And while this may be true, I was worried more about finding him as soon as possible. If the phone call was anything to go by, about an hour ago the man had interrupted him at the back door. Something awful, even worse than what could have happened to the man on the steps, probably happened to Dean. I knew he couldn't have gone down the mountain because his truck was still there. He had to be somewhere in the woods. If he was sick or hurt, I couldn't afford to wait an hour or two while the police made their way up. I glanced at the body again, squinting my eyes. Did it look... smaller? I leaned in to get a closer look. No, it didn't look smaller. It looked... thinner. I was about to inspect it further when I stopped. What was I doing, worrying about this when my friend was somewhere in the woods? This guy was dead. I was sure he wasn't going to go anywhere. I walked around the cabin and back to my car, popping the trunk. I almost reached for my pistol before deciding against it. I wasn't hunting something out there, I was looking for my friend. Just to be on the safe side, I grabbed my hunting knife and slipped it into a pocket on my jacket. If worse really came to worse, I figured that would be sufficient. Going back around, my eyes fell on the steps and I froze dead in my tracks. The body did look smaller. In fact, it looked like it was thinning right before my eyes. I ran forward, crouching beside the dead man. As I watched, his skin changed from the ashen gray to a moldy green. The muscle and fat seemed to melt off his bones, tightening around them, giving his whole appearance a skeletal look. His blood-stained smile grew wider as his facial features began rotting off, melting away until nothing but a grinning skull remained. The flannel and jeans ballooned around him as the body that was filling it wasted away. 
the bones themselves turned from blood-stained red to white to gray. They began crumbling, falling to dust until there was nothing left but a pile of ash vaguely in the shape of a human left. The wind picked up some of the pieces, blowing them away through the underbrush and the trees. I gagged, putting a hand up to my mouth, trying to hold back the bile. I had no idea what I had just witnessed, but I did not want to be a part of it. Even if Dean was lying somewhere in the woods with his foot in a bear trap or something, he'd just have to wait. People usually survive that kind of thing, right? I jumped to my feet and was about to run back around the cabin to my car when an ear-splitting scream erupted from somewhere in the darkness. Whipping around, I realized with mounting terror that I recognized the voice. It belonged to Dean. That realization broke me out of my cowardly dash for self-safety. What was I thinking? He had been my best friend for more than 20 years. Was I really going to run away and let whatever was out there do what it wanted to him? I ran back to the steps as the wind picked up the remains, sending them across the yard in a noxious cloud. I wasn't sure in what direction the scream had come from, but I imagined being in the woods would make it easier to track than waiting in the clearing for another sound to guide the way. I figured, again, since it was already there, that the cut path of the broken branches was as good a place to start as any. Fishing the flashlight out of my pocket, I held it up in front of me to guide the way as I stepped past the tree line. The underbrush started out fairly passable, but as the minutes ticked by, I found it harder and harder to pass. The bushes grew from about the height of my ankles to almost up to my waist. I had to kick them out of the way as I progressed, slowly but surely. In addition, I had to keep my flashlight steady and listen carefully for any noise that could point me in the direction of where Dean was. The wind rattled the branches far above, making them clatter against one another. The sound was making it harder to pick out anything that might just not be the ambient noises of the forest. At one point, twigs snapped and something darted across the path in front of me. But I saw that it was just a deer. I had been walking for about ten minutes, aimlessly following the path that only might lead me to where Dean was, before the dawning hopelessness set in. Did I reasonably expect to be able to find him in the woods all by myself? The forest was countless miles long and practically twice as wide. It covered most of the mountain the cabin was on. Dean's scream could have come from anywhere. The most I could be sure was that the dead man had come from this direction. Would Dean have actually followed the path taken by the man that had attacked him? Of course not. Now convinced the search for my friend was going to turn out fruitless, I resigned myself to the fact that I would just have to call the police and wait for hours for them to get up there. While somewhere in the woods, Dean was probably hurt and... My train of thought was shattered by my hunting boot kicking something metallic that had been lying in the path, sending it flying into the underbrush. I almost cried out in shock as the ringing noise echoed off the trees. I walked to the spot where it landed and peeked through the leaves to see what it was. It was a pistol, slightly dirty and losing its sheen from being stuck in the earth on the path. I picked it up and inspected the handle. Scratched on the side of the grip were the initials D.N. I pulled out the magazine. Two bullets were missing. He had to be somewhere nearby. Dean? Dean? 
and charged forward on the path. The wind decided to pick up then, sending the branches above into a fury as they tossed this way and that. Underbrush crunched under my feet as I ran, heedless of what was in front of me. I became aware of another sound, one that took me a few minutes to recognize, probably because it was identical to and being drowned out by the one I was making. I wasn't the only one breaking sticks as I ran in these woods. I stopped dead in my tracks and listened. A chill racked across my body as I reached into the pocket of my jacket for the hunting knife. I tried to rationalize it. At worst, it was probably just another deer. Maybe it wasn't anything alive at all. The wind was blowing pretty hard. It was probable that the sticks were snapping just because they were hitting the ground at such a fast rate. That seemed as logical as an explanation as... All of these attempts to rationalize it flew out the window as a face suddenly appeared in the beam of my flashlight up ahead. What? I stumbled backwards and accidentally dropped the pistol. It landed somewhere in the brush that I couldn't see. The face was an ashen gray, the same as the dead man's. It had the same rictus smile and scraggly hair, though it lacked the blood that had stained its lips and chin. The eyes were not rolled back either but instead bulged out of the skull, bloodshot and tinted yellow like a pair of light bulbs. It was wearing a jacket similar to my own, and a ball cap was perched on top of its head. It was Dean. The wind chose that moment to die down, disappearing completely as if by magic. The other noises of the forest, from the night birds to the deer to the grasshoppers and frogs, ceased all at once. I struggled to form words as the panic began to set in. Dean? Is that you, man? Are you feeling all right? It was a stupid question, I know, because he was obviously very much not all right. But it was the only thing I could think to say. (sighs) Dean's fists tightened at his sides. His head moved around slightly, eyes pivoting towards any sort of movement. He was acting like a startled animal. While I spoke, I began to slowly back away. I got to the cabin a few hours ago, and and you weren't there. I came out here to find you. I guess I did. His eyes showed no understanding of what I was saying. I'm just going to go head back to the cabin now and call someone. You can follow me if you want, but if you don't feel like it, just don't go too far, okay? I was talking less for Dean's benefit and more for my own. The pit in my stomach felt like it expanded to the size of a hot air balloon. Dean's face began to disappear back into the darkness as the flashlight beam was slowly taken off it. He was twitching again, mumbling to himself and moving his fingers. As the light went off his form completely, I saw that his eyes still glowed in the gloom, all red and yellow. He didn't appear to be moving towards me, but then again, he wasn't retreating either. Carefully. I slowly turned around so my back was to him. I began to creep along the path towards the cabin, trying to step over any rocks and sticks that might have made noise. Everything seemed like it was okay. I didn't know what the hell had happened to my friend, but at least I had a plan. I would go back to the cabin and call the police. They would know what to do. Just as that last thought crossed my mind, I stepped on an unseen branch that was hidden under a bed of pine needles. I took off like a rocket, swatting branches this way and that as I ran. A few of them hit me in my face and chest, almost throwing me off balance. I tried to do the math in my head, 
If it had taken me 10 minutes by walking, I could be back at the cabin in a few minutes at most. Although I was fast, Dean was faster. The sounds of him behind me grew louder and louder as the path began to thin out, signaling the clearing was nearly in sight. Just as I caught a glimpse of the back door through the trees, I felt a hand launch out and slash at my back with its fingernails, grabbing onto my jacket. I reached into my other pocket for the knife and brought it out, swinging it wildly behind me. Dean let go, stumbling backwards and landing in the bushes. I picked up my pace and dove into the clearing, nearly rolling over as I cleared the tree line. Scrambling to my feet, I launched towards the steps, hands outstretched for the knob. It was the wind that sealed my fate. If it hadn't decided to die down while we were in the woods, the dead man's clothes probably would have been blown into the yard. But all was silent and still as Dean chased me back to the cabin, and they were still there on the steps when I made my frantic flight up them. My foot slid against the flannel shirt, sending me down on my stomach. I landed hard on the concrete steps, hitting my chin on the top one and clacking my teeth against my tongue hard enough to draw blood. The knife clattered out of my hand and rolled down the steps. I didn't even have time to try and get up before I felt Dean's weight on top of me. The concrete scraped against my hands and knees as I wrestled with him, trying to throw him off, or at the very least flip him over. His fingernails raked against my skin, and I could feel the drool dripping out of his mouth and pattering on top of me. I managed to turn myself over to face him, only to see his face distort as he dove down, sinking his teeth deep into my shoulder. An ice-cold bolt of agony ran down my spine. Dean brought his head back up, and I saw my blood dripping from his mouth. He snarled again, almost in satisfaction, and began trying to pin my arms down. Though he managed to get my left one under my back, he noticed me scooping up the knife that lay on the steps beside us with my right. Just as he dove down to take a bite out of my bicep, I drew the knife up and plunged it deep into his neck. I pulled the knife out. A jet of blood shot out of Dean's wound and hit the side of my face. I weakly shoved him off as he slid down the rest of the steps, his movements slower and weaker. The places where he had bitten me burned like fire. I slowly managed to pull myself up to my feet. The world spun in front of my eyes, and a wave of dizziness washed over me. Through the pain and confusion, one coherent thought came through. I needed to call someone. The blood covering my fingers almost made my phone slip out of my hand as I stumbled through the back door and into the cabin. My vision began to blur. The hallway seemed to stretch in front of me like taffy. I pushed the first number that was already queued up. As the phone buzzed away, my heart seemed to go into overdrive, pumping so hard blood thrummed in my ears. Through the haze I heard someone pick up on the other end of the line. I wasn't in a place to recognize the voice. John! Thank God you called. Is Dean hurt? Is Dean... I attempted to slur a few words as it became harder and harder to remain upright. I was knocking into the walls now, sending the pictures hanging on them crashing to the floor. John? Are you there? Are you okay? All at once, the haze intensified, blurring my line of vision in red. My feet went out from under me, and I fell to the floor of the sitting room. The phone landed with a soft thump beside me. John? The voice began to say something else, but by then, the Red River had washed me away.
Sometime later, a sound pulled me out of the gloom. I tried to close my eyes, but found that I couldn't. I put my gray hands down to the carpet and tried to pull myself up. Uh, the noise. I wanted it to stop. It came again, ringing loudly in my ears. I tried to put my hands up. Though my eyes were wide open, I couldn't see much. There was one figure, outlined in red, that appeared to be somewhere ahead of me. The noise was coming from it. The sound ripped through my skull, causing me almost to cry out from the pain. Why was everything so loud? I just wanted it to be quiet. The red figure from behind the walls came closer, climbing up a few steps before it pushed open the front door. Compared to the cacophony of its steps and the creaking door, the voice came almost as a whisper. A smile cracked across my face. I had found the source of the noise. Once it was gone, I could get some peace. Its steps echoed in my ears, each sending a gunshot of pain. Just stop it and I could rest. Rest for as long as I wanted. Grinning, I started down the hallway towards the figure. The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.